Hayden Burns saw something in the woods. This is a story we've told around this campfire many years ago, but I wanted to tell you this strange tale again, because there are mysterious lights out there in the darkness. Just ask our former governor, the fascinating and essential Hayden Burns. He was the 35th governor of Florida from 1965 to 1967. His term was only two years, as the state's gubernatorial elections were moved to the midterm between presidential elections. Though his tenure was short, he made an impact, with Burns being the governor when Walt Disney announced his plan to move to Florida. His name is sealed in history, but he did not win re-election in 1966. On that campaign trail, however, Burns saw something in the woods. Or rather, he saw something above the woods. In an article from April 27, 1966, published in the Pensacola News Journal, the headline reads, quote, Mystery Lights Trail Burns Campaign Plane, end quote. Burns, along with a group of newspaper journalists, announced in a press conference what they had seen that Monday, the 25th of April. His campaign plane was flying from Orlando back to Tallahassee, a flight that takes you over the dark woods of the Ocala National Forest and many more wooded roadways up the middle of the state. Having spent time in those woods after sundown, it's easy to see things in the shadows that trick your eye. But this was no trick of the eye, and there are many witnesses to what they saw. The journalist reported a sighting, and Burns declined to make comments himself. He says, quote, I will confirm that I saw the same unidentified flying object they have alluded to in their writings, end quote. He is referring to the accounts recorded by the journalists on that same plane. Here's what the news journal says, quote, The four newsmen, all veteran reporters, are firmly convinced that they saw something, although they don't know what it was. They also point out that everyone aboard the plane saw the lights of the object, watched for several minutes, and then suddenly lost sight of it at the same time, end quote. Members of the government confirmed the sighting as well. Burns' executive assistant, Frank Stockton, as well as a captain in the Florida Highway Patrol, Captain Nathan Sharon. The co-pilot of the Corvair airplane being flown was named Herb Bates. He described what they saw as, quote, two bright yellow globes side by side, end quote, and said it kept pace with them for, quote, at least 40 miles, end quote. Air traffic control from Miami saw nothing on the radar besides Burns' plane. The UFO itself didn't have a discernible shape. All they saw were the two globes. According to one of the newsmen on the plane, Burns actually asked his plane to converge on the UFO. This is from Dwayne Bradford of the Tampa Tribune. Quote, what made believers out of the entire 12-person gubernatorial troop, however, was action of the object when Burns ordered his pilot to converge on it. As the Corvair's wings dipped toward the glowing UFO, the twin pair of lights quickly diminished in size, snapping off like a light switch a few seconds after the Corvair gave chase. End quote. So when the governor's plane shot toward the lights, they instantly faded, gone. Another journalist said the plane was at 6,000 feet and said it was the governor himself who alerted the passengers to the UFO, exclaiming, It's a UFO. The governor said that. Another journalist, Jack Ledden, describes the UFO in more detail. Quote, In shape, it resembled two inverted saucers, or parentheses, connected by a long pole. The light was solid and not like that produced by a string of light bulbs. End quote. And... Most notably, perhaps the most chilling detail of it all, is the speed. It was moving the same speed as the governor's plane, 230 miles per hour. What pursued the plane 
The public never got a solid answer. If Burns himself received an answer in his lifetime, he never shared with the public. The cause of the lights is still a mystery. Five weeks earlier, in nearly a thousand miles north in the small town of Dexter, Michigan, just outside of Ann Arbor, the Manor family was enjoying a spring night at home. Over a marsh near their farmhouse, an object covered in red and green lights seemed to land on their property. It behaved erratically, was covered in a strange pattern, made unusual sounds, and terrified the family. The police arrived and the Manors stated their case. They saw an object and they believed what they saw. Soon, an astrophysicist from Northwestern University would arrive, an investigator for the U.S. Air Force named J. Allen Hynek, Ph.D. Hynek led several UFO investigation programs for the Air Force, including Project Blue Book, one of my favorite stories in American history. Within a week of the sightings, Hynek made an assessment of what the Manor family had seen. Despite the eyewitness reports from the family, Hynek chalked up the sighting to, quote, rotting vegetation in lowland areas, end quote. This is from the University of Michigan's Bentley Historical Library. Quote, the vegetation created gases that were trapped in winter. During the spring thaw, the gases were released. This so-called, quote-unquote, swamp gas phenomenon could cause lights and even sound. End quote. Heineck himself notably said, quote, a dismal swamp is a most unlikely place for a visit from outer space. End quote. The people of Michigan were unhappy with that explanation, but the term stuck. Swamp gas. What is swamp gas? Unsurprisingly, that term has become associated with our state, Florida, and swamp gas has become an explanation for so many stories in the state of Florida. It never got associated with Hayden Burns, even though it happened within the same spring of 1966, and he too saw an unusual phenomenon in the sky. Over the following decades, swamp gas became the culprit for so many things. UFOs, haunted lights, and so much more. Good evening, and welcome to Wait Fright Minutes. I am your haunted host, Nick D'Alessandro. Your feature presentation tonight is an original story, The Ghost Lights of Florida, the unlikely explanation that helps skeptics sleep at night, and the questions that still haunt the shadowy corners of our neighborhoods. Tonight we're starting just over the bridge from my home, investigating a haunted tale of the Oviedo Lights. I went to visit the lights myself, and I'll tell you the tale as we drive through the night to the quiet corner of Seminole County in search of a pair of lights not too different from the yellow lights that pursued Governor Burns over the forests of Florida nearly six decades ago. Before we go any further, I do want to warn you that there is some brief discussion of some racial violence later on in this episode. When we talk about the Graceville Lights, uh, be prepared. I'm going to be talking a little bit about a lynching that occurred in that town about 100 years ago. So we'll talk about that then. But before then, let's go to Oviedo. Let's find the lights tonight. Oviedo is a sleepy suburban town just across the lake from my home of Sanford. Oviedo, in my mind, is nestled in the woods, and certain corners of that town feel like the great wilderness of Florida just out of sight. Just like my town, Sanford, Oviedo prospered by growing celery and even alternate forms of citrus after the Great Freeze of 1895, which helped the town become a huge part of the agricultural industry into the 20th century. Sanford and Oviedo are sort of sibling towns in that way, just with Lake Jessup dividing us. I often find myself a little unsettled, however, when I drive through Oviedo's downtown, especially late at night. 
Maybe it's because I spent a long afternoon strolling through Oviedo listening to a Stephen King audiobook one fall a few years ago. Or maybe it's because of the shadows that lurk at the periphery, threatening to overtake the glowing streetlights. As you thread through those wooded roadways, you'll pass the magnificent Econlacache River, one of my favorite bodies of water in the state of Florida, which we have talked about before. Out near that river, you can see the ghosts of a lost train track, a railroad that once was. The pylons still remain. And just south of that river, on a quiet road that curves through a neighborhood, that is where the lights appear. If you go to the bridge on Snow Hill Road that crosses the Econ River, and you wait until night falls, something very unusual is said to emerge from the darkness. The story goes that a foggy light will appear. Sometimes it's just one orb of light, sometimes it's many, and it comes drifting out over the roadway. This is from Weird US, a great website and book series for all your folklore and urban legend needs. They write, quote, Some witnesses have reported lights that look like the headlights of a car or lights that come down the road and then just stop and hang in midair. End quote. The movement of the lights seem to be somewhat inconsistent. Sometimes they hover, sometimes they pursue, sometimes they're solitary, and sometimes they're in a multitude. What adds to the mystique of these lights is not just the actual appearance and behavior of the lights, but the draw to see the lights itself. Going back to the 1950s, the story goes that kids and teens would gather on the bridge late at night. Some reports say you can only see them after midnight anyway. They would be waiting for the lights to appear. I found an article from Halloween of 1971 in the Orlando Sentinel written by one David Wilkening. The article is an excellent read. I'd love to recite it to you. Here's a few great quotes. Quote, the kids meet on the old concrete bridge late at night, and they stand around uneasily in the velvet darkness. They talk in low tones, repeating the ghost stories they have heard about this place. End quote. David goes on, quote, there may be some kids out here tonight waiting for the lights. The bridge belongs to this night, to Halloween. It is a time when more attention is paid to the mysteries of life, many of which only exist in men's minds. End quote. The kids, he says, hang out in the road, drinking, possibly disturbing the minimal traffic on the road. And according to this article, local police were not a fan of these late night gatherings looking for ghosts. The kids had all sorts of varying details that they added to the story, their own versions of what exactly happened here. They described it as a bluish light. They described it as having no consistent pattern in appearance. They described it as causing witnesses to get full body goosebumps. They even say that it might make a little whooshing sound as it approaches you. Apparently, those who see it are so frightened that they never want to witness it ever again. And yet, so many have sought it out through the years, including myself. So, what is the light? Like, not what does it look like, but what do the stories say it is? It's called the ghost light, and according to this article, a half dozen ghost stories have developed over the years, both explanations of the light itself or even haunted deaths that are caused by the light. There is the story of a girl that crashed from visiting the light. There is the story of a woman who was burned by the light. The light is apparently the lantern of a lost camper. And there are other mysterious deaths that may be the source of the light, ranging from a monster attack or a sudden murder. All sorts of Halloween and spooky story tropes get attributed to the ghost light, whether it's the ghost light hurting someone or the ghost light being from a, a vengeful or lost spirit. When something appears without explanation, it's easy to fill in the blanks, but it's a little more complicated when, according to several sources, someone really did die at the location of the ghost light. Here's what the Orlando Sentinel says, quote, A young man just out of high school was killed near the bridge while playing chicken with another driver a few years ago, end quote. 
In that weird U.S. article, a local historian says a similar thing, saying, quote, Two boys who will remain unnamed were out there driving with their lights off and one killed the other with the car, end quote. I did some digging through newspaper clippings and I couldn't really find anything, but if two separate sources are saying the same details, it leads me to believe that it's true unless one of those sources is influencing the other. But I, I did my due diligence. I can't seem to find it anywhere, but if it's local folklore that, that a kid did die out there, I'm, I'm inclined to believe it. The other stories, however, of an animal attack or a murder on the bridge or some spectral lantern, those are just stories. The real death is the one that seems to haunt the place along with the lights. The local historian from the Weird US article, they, they added, quote, For those of us in the know, we feel sad when the lights are brought up and try to play them down at Halloween, end quote. That makes sense to me. Tragedy is turned so easily into a ghost story, but that didn't stop news stories from emerging, nor did it stop kids decade after decade from arriving to the bridge and looking for the lights. We're going to talk more about that idea of tragedy turned into a ghost story in a moment. But before we go there, I need to tell you, I went looking for the lights. I went one night as a drizzly rain was falling over central Florida. It was cool, and the rain came and went, flecking my windshield as the streets got darker. I began my trek, actually, in downtown Orlando in the urban heart of our city, and I slowly found the streetlights fading away little by little. Off the highway through the neighborhoods, I watched as the houses fell away and the cars fell away, and soon it was only me and the wide field of my car's brights revealing the woods on either side. I came from the south, turning slowly, passing houses on large properties, some of them flecked with orange and purple lights to mark the holiday. Soon, the horizon contained little to no light pollution at all. The only lights in the sky were the towers of light from cell towers blinking repetitive signals into the night above. I wanted to be brave. It's just a bridge, and I'm not too far from home. In fact, I've actually driven this route before after hiking in the nearby woods, a woods that I have found total comfort and peace in. I'm not exactly afraid of the little big econ trail. It's a beautiful trail. I've walked it alone. I've walked it with others. It's, it's a beautiful park, but something out here that night gave me the chills. I believe that I had a chill down my spine because I'd been researching this story for a few days and I found myself unsettled not by the actual appearance of the lights themselves, but by the stories that I had heard. It was a twofold uncertainty I was feeling. What if I were to see the ghost lights? Or perhaps more frightening, what if there were people there also searching for the foggy ball of light in the darkness? What if I saw, as my lights reached the bridge, a person? A real person, an apparition, I don't know. I was afraid of all the possibilities of what I could have seen out there. At one curve on my route to the bridge, I did see a group of people with their headlights pointing toward each other doing something in a parking lot, maybe taking some photos. I wasn't entirely sure, probably something innocent, but my hair was already raised and I was seeing monsters in every corner. As I finally approached the bridge, a light rain began to fall again, misty drops falling over my car and the river to the north. A car passed me just as I arrived to the bridge, and I slowed down hard to take my time coasting. And I passed over the Snow Hill Road Bridge, home to my region's own spectral lights, alone. There was fear in the back of my head. But before I tell you what I saw, or what I didn't, we must visit the other spectral lights in Florida, all the way to the north in the Panhandle. Because Oviedo is not the only town in Florida with ghost lights, and I'm sure these are not the only two ghost light stories. If you have a ghost light story unrelated to these two, the Oviedo lights or the Graceville lights, send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com. I'd love to tell your town's spooky ghost story. 
these ghost lights are a very common thing in the southern United States, all over the South, Texas, North Carolina, Georgia, Arkansas. These stories are everywhere. I'm going to tell you a few, but I'd like to tell you the second one in the state of Florida. It's very interesting. Up in the panhandle where Florida borders our neighbors to the north, we've already heard actually some haunted tales. A few years ago, we spoke about the Bride of Bellamy Bridge, a story of a spectral woman in white who drifts over a bridge that is not there. We've also spoken of one of Florida's many different Bigfoot adjacent cryptids, including the incredibly named Two Egg Stump Jumper, named after the town of Two Egg, maybe the greatest cryptid name of all time, the Two Egg Stump Jumper, great to say. Well, not too far from those two haunted spots, there is another, the town of Graceville and their spectral lights, the Graceville Spook Lights. But unlike the Oviedo Lights, the people of Graceville have a very specific story that they attach to their lights, and it's a tragic one. The Graceville Spook Lights, as they are dubbed by historian Dale Cox, can be seen on an old railroad bed where you'll, quote, see two strange lights that appear at unpredictable intervals almost every night, end quote. Unlike the Oviedo ghost lights, where a dozen different stories have arisen about their spectral origins, the Graceville spook lights have no question in Dale Cox's mind about what these lights actually are. They are, according to legend, vengeful spirits. The story goes that in September of 1910, some people were actually murdered here at a trestle bridge of the railroad, lynched to be specific, and what starts out as a classic old folk story quickly takes a turn toward a tragic history in our state. The story is that of Edward Christian, a black man living in the area back in 1910. According to newspapers from the time, Edward had stolen a watch from a doctor. A warrant was out for his arrest, and local deputy sheriff Alan Burns went to arrest Edward alongside the doctor whose watch was stolen. According to the Tampa Tribune from September 3, 1910, quote, His call for Christian to come out was greeted from within by a volley of shots, one bullet striking Burns in the breast and another in the arm, end quote. Edward fled town into Alabama, but was brought back to Jackson County, where Graceville resides. Again, according to the Tribune, a black woman named Hattie Bowman was also arrested, quote, suspected of having had a hand in the shooting of the officer, end quote. A lynch mob led them from the jail with ropes around their necks. They were hung from a trestle, and no one was ever arrested. As far as I can tell, very little has been written about this horrible lynching. A memorial was proposed to be put up honoring Hattie and Edward and seven others, but the last update was that the memorial had been put on hold back in 2018. They are among the 257 black Americans lynched in the state of Florida between 1882 and 1968. The spot where the graceful lights appears is the same railroad bed where Hattie and Edward were murdered 113 years ago. And the legend goes that the two lights that drift from the darkness are their spirits, still lingering in the location where they were unjustly killed over a century later. Dale rightfully notes how pervasive the ghost lights are in the United States, especially in the Southeast. Our neighboring states have similar stories. These are just a few that Dale Cox notes in his piece. Up in North Carolina, there is the Mako light, which tells the legend of a flashing lantern on a railroad, said to be the ghost of a railroad worker waving a lantern to tell the others that his car had gone uncoupled, only for the train to crash and for the worker to die in the accident. Similar to how Governor Hayden Burns saw the Ocala lights, President Grover Cleveland is reported to have seen the Mako lights back in 1889. The Gurdon light over in Arkansas tells a similar story, the spectral lantern of a railroad worker who was run over by a train. 
Also in Arkansas are the Dover lights, which no one quite knows the origins of. The light apparently resembles a miner's light from the nearby mines or Spanish conquistadors searching for gold, or the light of a spirit guiding the native peoples of that land into the afterlife. Over in Missouri, in the town of Seneca, a spook light appears that changes shape and color, sometimes, quote, bouncing from tree to tree, end quote. The stories of the Seneca light are old. They date back all the way to the 1800s. And according to locals, quote, if you want to see it, they say, you just have to be patient and quiet, end quote. I was not patient the night I went to the Oviedo lights. I was gone almost as quickly as I arrived. To be honest with you, I was scared. I was alone in my car, baseball playing over my radio to settle my nerves and a rattle in my chest as I grew closer. But as your trusty host, I did my very best to keep an eye on the surroundings. Soon, I arrived to the Snow Hill Road Bridge. It's a nondescript bridge with a high fence on either side to prevent someone from perhaps leaping into the river just below. Not far enough to cause serious bodily harm, but nevertheless, it's good to have those protections. For a moment, in the very far distance, as I rolled over the bridge... I caught a glimpse of light and a thought flashed through my mind. Was I about to tell you all that I saw the Oviedo lights? And would you ever believe me if I did? But then the shadows parted and the light revealed itself to be another lone traveler. The driver of that car may be just as surprised to see me as I was to see them. Nothing waited for me on the Snow Hill Road bridge. Only other cars and a pair of flashing yellow stoplights in the distance. No floating ball of spectral blue light, just the usual. Other humans off through the darkness to wherever we lay our heads that night. But there's no denying my hesitance. The stories had gotten to me, and that carries a lot of weight. I'm not normally a skeptic, but I find myself very skeptical about this story. At least skeptical that I would see anything, because... I had these stories in my mind, and I've never really seen a ghost. We don't need to go into my ghost stories in this, but I've never seen a ghost. And I didn't think I was going to see one that night, but but the stories, they influence you. And if you've heard those stories when you go out to the bridge, it's easy to see something and start painting your narrative onto it. I had heard those stories, and when I saw a car approaching through the misty rain for a moment, I was like, oh my god, there it is. But no, just another car in the dark. Now... I would like to tell you my theory or my patchwork bits of evidence of what I think the Oviedo ghost lights are, and I'm afraid you're not going to like the answer. I'll be honest with you. I don't think it's headlights. I was in the optimum conditions for it to be refracted headlights. It was misty rainy, a little foggy, the perfect condition for lights to ripple through the, the weather and make strange shapes or strange optical illusions. But even as that other car approached me, there was no unusual illusion to that precipitation before me. There were no other roads nearby either. There's no other way for cars to be sort of flashing their headlights through the darkness. You're crossing a river on a bridge. There is a suburban side street that's just a few beats away, but there's a whole lot of forest between there and here, and I can't imagine headlights reaching through that much foliage to create balls of lights that move at random intervals over this bridge. I just can't make that make sense from any angle. Headlights would not be able to create this glowing phenomenon. You'd see that there's a car. There's just too much darkness, or perhaps just enough. I cannot believe that the lights that you're seeing are that of another car in the distance. So that theory crossed off for me. And to be honest with you, I don't think it's a ghost. Now, I told you, I have my own ghost stories. You've even heard some on this show. I'm inclined to believe ghost stories when I hear them, but I'm sorry. I want to sit here and be as open and believing of ghost stories as you are. But 
I've never really believed in these spook lights. I've, I've never really heard a story that makes me think that it is a ghost. It feels too random. And we already know that nature can produce unusual light phenomenon. And that, to me, is what I think this is. This is the part you're not going to like. I think it might be swamp gas. <laughs> okay, so that is sort of a joke in the UFO and ghost community calling a thing a swamp gas. It's it's pretty funny because it's the same thing as, you know, when they said the Roswell crash out in 1947. They, they said that that was a weather balloon, right? Now, it very well may be. This is not a UFO podcast. Do not take my word as gospel. But it's funny to say, oh, I saw this incredible phenomenon. I think it was swamp gas. What is swamp gas? I'm here to tell you. It's an actual thing. It's not some random made-up term. It, it genuinely is a thing. Okay, so here is the theory that is most relevant. The same swamp gas that J. Allen Hynek said was the ball of light that landed in Michigan all those years ago. Swamp gas is an anomaly that is very confusing and we don't even fully understand it, which, you know, that may leave some holes enough for you to say it's a ghost and I understand. This is from a fascinating article from Popular Science by one Benji Jones. I'll include a link so you can give it a read. It is an excellent read. Benji notes that the real phenomenon is called foolish fire, quote, a ball of flame that hovers above a marsh's dark, still water for a few minutes before dissipating into the night, end quote. These are the same sorts of things that were seen in Europe hundreds of years ago that created the myth of the Will-o'-the-Wisp or the Jack-o'-lantern. The term Jack-o'-lantern comes from the same place as Will-o'-the-Wisp. It was these spectral balls of light that would appear out over the marshes of Europe, of England. And we have marshes here in Florida. What's to say we don't have the same phenomenon? But this article uses some research by a microbial biochemist from Rutgers University named Jeff Boyd. He says that bog water, which is stagnant and often low on oxygen, is the perfect condition for certain microorganisms to live. These microorganisms are called methanogens, which are microorganisms that eat decaying organic material. They eat dead plants, and then they convert that into a number of things, including methane gas. That methane is flammable, and when that methane bubbles up under the bogs, if it is to burst up, that gas could catch fire and create an unusual light anomaly over the, the muck, the marsh of a swamp. We have methane like that in the swamps of Florida, so it's easy to assume that we have these same sorts of phenomena, but there is a problem, and it's a very funny problem. What causes the methane to burst into flame? Let's say that that is what this is. Let's say the Oviedo spook lights are methane gas explosions coming from the swamps around the Econlacachi River, and they they burst up and they illuminate and they and they create this spectral light. But what ignites the methane? Even back to England and Europe, the old ghost light stories. What ignites the methane? We don't know. <laughs> We, we don't know. The theory suggests that there is another gas called phosphine, which can spontaneously combust. It can spontaneously combust. So if there is a bog where there is methane and phosphine, and they generate and burst just right, the methane bursts out, the phosphine spontaneously combusts, then voila, you've got a ghost light. But it, it would require all of those things to happen. It's a naturally occurring supernatural light show. But that is just a theory. We don't know for sure that that's what happens. The conditions have to be just right. And even though the Econlacachi River flows under the site of the Oviedo Lights, there is certainly marshland nearby. 
right there in those swamps. There could be methane, there could be phosphine, they could illuminate and create a weird light that could burn somebody like that one story says, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Even if the swamp gas theory does not quite make sense for that UFO up in Michigan, nor does it really explain the Ocala lights that chased the governor's planes over the forest back in the 60s, I think it's hard to ignore that there is some science that could explain the Oviedo lights. Both of the stories in Florida, the one up in Graceville and the one down here in Oviedo, both of them have similar conditions. Bridges over swampy Florida land with enough folklore to wrap the story up in a supernatural package and turn into a ghost story. Does the swamp gas theory support the idea that the light would chase cars or change shape or float around slowly? I have no idea. But that's the closest thing to an answer that I think we're going to get. I'm hardly surprised, however, that it's easy to pin Florida's nature as the origin of a ghost story. Because we understand our swamps, but only to a certain degree. They are all around us. They are everywhere. And they will outlive us. We will never truly know what secrets wait in the endless darkness of our swamps. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Fright Minutes. I am so glad that you are here to hear these spooky stories. Genuinely creeped myself out a little bit while writing this one over the last couple weeks. So thank you for listening. Please share this spooky ghost story with anyone who you think might be in need of a good ghost story for October. I'm very proud of this story. I'm very proud of myself for going out to that bridge because I was genuinely pretty creeped out. <laughs> but, Share the episode on Instagram or Facebook at WFNPod. You can send me an email at WFNPod at gmail.com. If you have a ghost story, I would love to hear it. Send it to me at WFNPod at gmail.com. Sincerely, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give the show a five-star review. It helps the show grow. It means a lot to me. And it means new people can find this show at just the right time. Thank you for listening. I'm going to include a link to that weird U.S. article, that popular science article, and the blog from Dale Cox about the Graceville spook lights. Really, it's amazing how lucky we are to have so many people writing about ghost stories and supernatural stories and folklore. People are invested, and, and that always excites me. So go give those articles a read and, and support the people who wrote them. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, next week, folks, it is back to the cinema. We're going to take a trip talking about some of Florida's great horror filmmakers, the ones that you've probably never heard of, and we're going to visit my favorite local movie theater here in Orlando, The Enzian. If you're from Orlando, you know The Enzian. I, I love it so much. It's so special to everybody here in Orlando, especially people who really love movies like I do. I will be back at you next Wait Fright Minutes with that next Monday. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, go Gator and Muddy the water. Have an excellent and spooky October. Whoosh. I love that they used to whoosh away. Whoosh. Here they go. Whoosh. Into the swamp. <laughs>